Hey, Ethan, do you ever read something and it's so perfectly described that you can actually hear it in your brain? Yeah, Sarah, I think I think I've had that phenomenon a few times. I rarely do, but every time in Bloody Rose, Kira does her ink summon. I'm like, I hear that. So clearly, like I've heard it in an anime or a movie, the, you know, the dramatic shout. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I always imagine it, even though she's just like a human yelling, I always sort of imagine it with like the slight like echo or reverb or something that like an announcer in like Overwatch or uh, League of Legends or something might have. <laughs> That's a slightly different take than my head canon, but also very similar in that it it has uh, like thaumaturgy applied to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Where there's some some echo and some boom, and I I want to remember what source I'm thinking of whenever she shouts like Yomina or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's so clear. Yeah, if you could just catalog through your. Your all of your media knowledge and find that for me. <laughs> I'll get right on it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, why is Kira one of the best characters? <laughs> In Bloody Rose. No context. Nobody needs to know what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. I suppose we should mention. Uh, well, uh, you did say Bloody Rose. I did. Is it because, okay, (laughs) so there's something very interesting about Kira, which is that she feels like, like on paper, a very sort of straightforward cliche character, right? Like, she's like the hot angsty goth chick, right? Like, but, you know, through like a fantasy lens, but she's genuinely like super interesting and has like an interesting backstory and she's she's not as uh sulky and detached as that character archetype often is she isn't like raven from teen titans right like she's not just like sad in a corner doesn't want to be friends with anyone right she's still like very personable and like friends with the rest of the group and all of that stuff. Yeah. I remember when we're getting ready to read this book and I was going to reread it because I had already uh, started with it long ago. For some reason, I remember not liking Kira where I thought I hadn't really liked Kira in hindsight. I don't know where I got that thought because going back through it again, she's awesome. Yeah, she's great. I, okay, can we just dive right in to a later in the book thing that is Kira related while we're on the topic of Kira? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're just starting in the middle of nowhere with this opening, so uh, (laughs) go for it. Well, by now people will have heard the 
Kings of the Wild episode where we similarly were just like, <laughs> whatever, I hope you read it because we're not going to talk about anything in any particular order or <laughs> give any context for any of what happens. Yeah. Bloody Rose, Nicholas Eames, Kira. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> this is, I guess, more about Tam than about Kira. But I know where this is going. Yeah, there's a scene. I like this book a lot. I, I think I don't like it quite as much as Kings of the Wild, personally, but I think it's very good. There is a scene between Tam and Kira that made me so, like, frustrated with Tam as a character. Because she has this giant crush on Kira. As one does. <laughs> right. They are, like, alone together, and Tam is like, you know, open up to me, tell me your sad backstory, and uh, <laughs> Kira, like, does, and explains, like, yeah, I had, like, a really fucked up life, and the only person that I ever liked and respected and was cool to me was my uncle, who's dead now. He's basically the only person I ever cared about, at least like prior to joining this band or whatever. Uh, he's very important to me and he's dead and it's very sad. <laughs> and Tam is like, oh no, so sad. And Kira Just is like, like <laughs> Kira is like, here. I want you to have this knife that was like the last thing my dead beloved uncle <laughs> gave me. And also the knife is called Kiss. And Tam's inner monologue is like, Ugh, I was all you know, open and vulnerable with her. And all she did was give me a knife. I guess she doesn't care about me. And it's like, <laughs> have you, were you paying any attention? To this at all? What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I I had a feeling this was going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> this has really stuck with you. You, you uh, <laughs> yeah. So I did, uh, I did highlight some things as I was reading, and when I got to that scene, I'm like, I'm going to highlight this because <laughs> you had mentioned it. Yeah. It is it is a moment of a lack of emotional intelligence on Tam's part uh, by a lot. I can kind of see where she's coming from. Because when you when you get caught up in what you want. And someone does something drastically different from that, it can feel a little hurtful. So I think she really wanted like. Kira physically and emotionally and not a knife. Yeah. But just completely overlooked the deep, deep significance of that knife. Yeah. It's very it's weirdly um like shitty teenage boy behavior of like <laughs> This is a moment of like emotional intimacy and honesty and Tame's like, oh, I just wanted to bang. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a metaphorical kiss <laughs> but yeah and uh, then they like sleep together like literally fall asleep next to each other 
And Tam was like, oh, friend zoned. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh no, Tam, me and 15 year old, or you and 15 year old me are alike in bad ways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's tragic. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, she glared at the knife and then thought, I gave her my heart, Tam thought miserably, and she gave me a knife. <laughs> and I I actually named this chat room Not Another Knife because there's a line <laughs> much, much later in the book where I think Kira is trying to be uh, a little more affectionate with Tam or trying to tell her something important. And Tam's like, please don't give me another knife. <laughs> which is still so sad (laughs) (laughs) have you learned nothing well judging by an important scene with tam later in the book she probably thinks that the most meaningful thing kira could do with a knife is uh destroy it given that it is her last remaining uh heirloom from a dead beloved family member what? Oh. When uh, Tam breaks her mother's harp. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> like, the symbolism, I totally get. But I'm also like, why? I Right. That's the thing. <laughs> it's like, I totally agree. It's like, I get, I get what you're going for. That she's, like, not really the bard. She's, like, a full member of the band and, like, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, it is, like, you know that, like... Four days after, you know, this big battle is over and stuff, and she's just like living a relatively normal life again. She's gonna be like, I wish I had my dead mom's harp still. <laughs> yeah. Or loot. Whichever. Yeah, whichever. Yeah. Uh, so but I guess for, for some context, if anyone needs it, uh, Tam Tam finally got to claim her mother's loot after her dad kept it locked away for a while um, after her mother passed and she's been traveling with it and being the bard for the party and then at the end of the book she just realizes that's not her role and smashes it and I I mean there have been things I have gotten rid of because of weird attachments to them and it's helped me get over it but that is just so heartbreaking. Yeah, well, and also, like, I don't know, she could give it back to her dad. Right? She didn't <laughs> want to visit him. Kind of. Yeah. that whole, I wasn't a huge fan of that whole thing either. Yeah. Uh, again, like, I can understand the character's logic. Bran, I think his name was. Something like that. Or is that the uncle? I think that's the uncle. Tuck, anyway, I think his Tuck. name is. Yeah. I I can kind of understand Tuck being like, don't come back because I don't want to know whether or not you're dead or alive. But if she comes back... Like, right! Yeah. I, I mean, I get that he's flawed, but Tam actually respecting that kind of is what really got me. I'm like, you're right there. Yeah. And like, especially like you're going to tie your ribbon to your dog so that he knows anyway. So, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. 
I want to talk about just again. I like this book. I'm about to talk about another thing that annoys me because I just <laughs> okay, want to get... we'll say nice things. Yeah, right. We'll get the negativity out of it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? In a, like a performance <laughs> review is like you say the bad stuff up front and then you focus on the positive so that you end on like a good note. Um, I wouldn't know because all of my performance reviews have been nothing but positive things. I'm an excellent <laughs> worker. Uh, <laughs> but there's there's just another moment before we get too far away from the the dagger thing there's another moment that i need to criticize of not just not just tam like doing something kind of dumb but like the entire party has like a very silly dumb moment uh relatively early on like first third of the book or so that is it's clearly just that like the author wants to have a little twist and wants to have like foreshadowing so that it's not out of nowhere but pours on like way too much foreshadowing to the point that it's just like i don't understand how the characters are surprised by this which is when they go to Brune's village because he's like, I'm bad at being a bear. I need to go back to my village and learn how to be a bear. Good. And then they get there and they see that like outside of his house is like a broken like wolf statue. And he's like, oh, yeah, like my mom was a wolf. My dad that I hate is a bear, but my mom <laughs> that I love was a wolf. But she she did leave. Well, yes, that's true. Yeah, he didn't he didn't really get to spend much time with her and felt abandoned because she left their family. Yeah. And then they're like they're like getting like painted before the fight by this like magic lady that could like see what animal spirit you are and like paints you to look like that and there's like a description there's like internal monologue from tam of like huh that's weird bears don't usually have like white gray fur and long snouts and curly tails <laughs> she's sure painting brune like a weird bear oh yeah. well <laughs> and that then lady they... must not be as good at her job as she thinks Right, and then, of course, like, the reveal is that, like, oh, Broom turns into a wolf, not a bear, and it's like, e yeah, man! <laughs> like, really? No one got that before now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, again, we talked about this in a previous episode, at least once, about characters not getting to know the things that are really obvious to us as readers, even though the clues are also there for them like they're taking place in the world they exist in mm -hmm. uh and it it's a it's a weird trend i think we see it a lot in that it's a it's i think it's okay for characters to come to these conclusions and still have it be a revelation yeah yeah it uh it, it was um i think it stood out to me so much in this instance, because I felt like the first book was really good about that. Like, we talked about it a little bit in that episode where, like, 
they build up the reveal, uh, or Eames builds up the reveal that the three, what do they call Druin. Yeah. Who were involved with the magic sword and whatnot. And like that family is actually the gods that everyone worships or whatever. Like, but he builds that up and then like reveals it like immediately. Like it's not, it's not like a foreshadowing in one chapter where you hear the story and then later, you know, it's revealed that like, oh, it was them or whatever. They give you the background of the the four Druin and then the characters are immediately like, oh, okay. So they're like the four gods, right? And it's like, yeah, okay. Everyone's on the same page real quick. Yeah. And it, it worked. It didn't feel out of nowhere mm-hmm. because there, there had been, throughout the book, they were talking about these gods from their perspective as worshippers of those gods and so you you had them established and then we get that reveal and it makes sense and it's not dragged out yeah well said yeah and um, yeah this one was a little on the nose on the snout yeah <laughs> yeah on on that note related to Brune's father being a piece of shit okay I I wouldn't want to pry into Nicholas Eames' personal life or anything, but the number of characters who have really shitty asshole dads, especially, particularly, is too damn high. <laughs> I mean, only, like, every named central character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, at, at, at best you have Gabe and Tuck. As like they're still functional, not outright abusive, maybe uh like anger issues and and bouts of you know that emotional manipulation that Tuck was doing and stuff, but but they were like the good ones. And then you get every other <laughs> you can tell that it's a it's not a good series for dads when you describe Tuck Hashford as the good one. I know, and I, I'm not even really endorsing him as a good father, but comparatively, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he's not abusive. He just has anger issues and lashes out at his daughter and uh, manipulates her and tries to keep her at home. Anyway, he's fine. <laughs> just because Clay and Tam and arguably Rose... And Free Cloud and Kira and Brune all have terrible thoughts. Fa- oh, and uh, the dude from the first book, what's his name again? Is turned to stone. Gigabir. <laughs> Just because they all have terrible dads. Oh, and Larkspur, right? I think. Yeah. Doesn't mean. <laughs> <laughs> there's any kind of theme what about moog he never mentions his dad he might have been fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's uh uh contrastingly though we do have uh clay clay cooper is you know he's, he's trying to be a good father 
Yeah. Yeah. After he murdered his dad. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> deserved. It definitely deserved. Yeah. And man, Kira, Kira's backstory is bordering on just like downright unbelievable chain <laughs> of traumatic events. Yeah. But I was sold. I'm like, okay. Because we get yeah. these, we get these really like emotionally meaningful ink tattoos. As mm-hmm. most tattoos are ink. And uh, it's just really an interesting way to weaponize your own trauma. Trauma. Yeah. See, yeah. I don't want to say that in a way that I, <laughs> disclaimer, I don't think that's how it should work in reality. <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> Batman. <laughs> uh, but in this context, it was interesting. Yeah, I agree. The reveal that Yomina was her uncle, I think, really like sells it. Like that's yeah. a that's a great because you've seen her summon that several times by the point you find that out, and you've like listened to her whole backstory and everything, and it's it's a very cool moment that I think like tells you a lot about her character. Definitely the way the way she describes how he comes in through the door with I think seven swords sticking through him. Uh I think because he was doing the right thing and maybe some mm-hmm. some thugs or people he went up against did not like that. Yeah, like that it's a very strong image. Uh, it stuck with me. I actually remember that detail. Yeah. And it's just, it's very interesting that she chose to, I don't, it's, it's just very good character work. Like there's so much behind that decision that, you know, informs like who she is as a person. Like the fact that she switches from summoning in the more traditional way of like the clay figures that you break and stuff like that. That am I remembering right that he kind of taught her how to do that? Yeah. The fact that she transitions to that from that to something more like permanent and like physically taxing and just very different of having like these tattoos the fact that he was one of her first tattoos the fact that she chooses to immortalize him in his moment of death rather than having you know a tattoo of him like at his peak or whatever like there's just a lot of really interesting subtext behind that decision absolutely because when when you think of you know getting a tattoo to memorialize someone it's usually you know, the smiling face of your wife or, you know, you know, just something nice, right? Not a vultured head man with seven swords sticking out of him. Right. Uh, and it, yeah, it does say a lot. And I, I'm not a therapist or psychologist or have any sorts of credentials to say this, but... Then what have I been paying you for? <laughs> 
saying? The checks must have gotten lost in the mail. <laughs> but her having to tattoo them, which is it's painful, and she's tattooing herself, lines up with this things I have experienced through knowing people who have experienced trauma and the way they have at points in their life dealt with that and she reminds me of a of a friend I have that like if her trauma was ratcheted up to 11 like that like I can see the parallels and I, mm-hmm. I think that means that it, it's well done yeah it's it feels like a real person mm-hmm. which is crazy because every aspect of it just feels like a character a caricature goddamn <laughs> of of that and then it just comes together right yeah and then there's all those other guys in the book yeah yeah i like broom broom's just like a nice dude which i'm always you know I'm always down for. Yeah, he's super chill. And he can drink a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I find that an important quality, but... <laughs> I imagine if you did, we would get along not as well. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the amount of alcohol that is consumed in this book is astronomical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the drunkest books I've read. <laughs> right. Forget forget monsters and hordes and evil druids. You're going to die of like failure of liver, liver failure. failure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> before <laughs> before anything else. <laughs> and it's I, I guess on the topic of substance abuse, there's the l- lion's courage or something like that. Lion's leaf, I think. Yeah, Lion's Leaf. The characters have no problem doing like fun recreational drugs and drinking, but they they take the Lion's Leaf and they put it in this different dangerous category. And I I kind of appreciate that there is some recognition of not all drugs are are um, you know, good to consume. Yeah. I agree. I I thought the lion's leaf stuff was really interesting. I thought that the exploration of Rose's trauma from the first book and from beyond the first book, like, I, I thought all of the stuff about Rose's motivation, you know, from wanting to set out initially because she felt trapped in her dad's shadow and then having to deal with the PTSD essentially of having survived this horde in the first book and all of that was really interesting and I thought that her having to rely on this drug to as like a very unhealthy coping mechanism felt very like real. 
It did. And again, I'm, again, I have no credentials or experience. I've only consumed alcohol. That's the extent of my substance use, if you will. So I don't, I can't relate. But it felt sincere. It felt like there was at least some thought put into it and not just like hard drug bad. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm kind of a sucker for like addiction stories. I don't really. Well, I mean, I was going to say I don't really know why, but that's not super true. Um, I have past personal experience with I've had people in my life that were alcoholics. I haven't really known anybody that's like gone super hardcore into like harder stuff than that. Mm-hmm. But like I I made the joke earlier about like, you know, if being able to drink a lot is an important quality, then like we wouldn't get along as well because like I don't drink. I don't have I don't have a problem with people drinking or anything like that. I always feel like I need to say that like very quickly after saying that I don't drink because I know I feel like a lot of people would jump to the conclusion that I'm like, I don't know, it's like super religious or judgy or something like that. Yeah, but like that's not normally. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I I choose not to drink personally because like I have known alcoholics and I know myself well enough to know that like if I started drinking I wouldn't stop drinking. Like I am absolutely <laughs> The kind of person who would use that as a crutch, like, especially, I mean, like what I'm on medication now, so it's not as much of a problem, but like I spent, you know, the first 24 or so years of my life, like really struggling with like depression and like suicidal ideation and all that stuff. And I'm like 100% positive that if I have like let myself drink that's that's all like that would become a crutch that i would i don't know that i could like get off of right yeah so addiction stories always like really hit home for me and i enjoyed that aspect of rose in this book just because yeah, I'm just a sucker for that stuff. I don't know. It was nice to see her, like, by the end of the book, have kind of shaken that off a bit. Um, I also like that she sort of gets off of it for a while, and then she kind of relapses, right? And hides it from Free Cloud, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, but it, it was, like, premeditated. Like, she was going through the motions of not doing it for Free Cloud. And then knew, you know, in this big final battle that she wasn't going to, she wasn't going to make it without it. Or it was a little bit before that, actually, I think. Yeah. Against the, uh, the dragon thing. Yes. The dragon eater or whatever. Yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, I think that kind of thing is a really like important thing to show in a lot of stories like that, because it's very much a 
a part of recovery for a lot of addicts, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's extremely uh, rare for someone to try to stop and just stop and not ever like fall off the wagon. I I went off on a on a tangent in our Kings of the Wild episode about Discworld, and I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to do so again really quickly, but that series also has an addiction story for one of its protagonists that I, I think is really good. In the first Guards book, the main character, uh, Vimes, is an alcoholic and spends a lot of that mm. first book struggling. And... um one of the things that I like about his arc in particular is that while he doesn't ever really like relapse, it's never not a problem anymore, right? Like, even several books later, like, there are, are moments where it's very, very hard for him not to go back to it. Uh, so I think having that kind of story beat in, in, media that deals with that subject matter is important i um yeah definitely and i say this as someone who is probably multiple steps away from alcoholism so i'm not like like there but having decided not to drink for at least a year and being like 90 percent successful in that i constantly want alcohol and i don't even consider this to be a like true addiction i just want to have it so i can't imagine having like that history of alcoholism and just constantly being you know faced with it especially in the modern world where it's everywhere and it's very Mm -hmm. socially acceptable and kind of expected in a lot of circles i would not make it (laughs) yeah and like i don't know i mean even for me who is like literally never even taken a a sip or whatever, you know, like I've just never had alcohol. It can be really hard to like not drink sometimes. Like I've, I've been at like weddings where like they've, the people getting married have asked me to like drink in their toasts, even though I'm like not, they know that I like don't drink. I had like, (laughs) they've, like there's just weird pressures sometimes to like yeah but just do it (laughs) and it's like yeah even for me as a person who's just like decided that they didn't really want to it can be like kind of difficult to stick to that sometimes i can't imagine being someone who like actually like wants it (laughs) Right. Yeah. And we're we're down this rabbit hole, but uh, <laughs> I think it is maybe becoming more cool and acceptable and, and the good thing to do to have alternatives like sparkling juice or whatever mm-hmm. or uh, zero ABV alcohol by volume, whatever. Zero percent alcohol options, which I think is great. I think we need more of that for people who want to experience the social aspect of having a toast without getting toasted. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anywho. Yeah. <laughs> Back on topic. Just like the previous book, Kings of the Wild, what I really enjoy about Bloody Rose is that despite the book being called Bloody Rose, it is from Pam's perspective. She is the main point of view. And she idolizes Rose just based on stories and occasionally seeing her in town, passing through. And then we actually get to see Tam see Rose as an actual flawed human being. And she's not, she's not what Tam had expected. Yeah, it's really fun. It's almost like the inverse of the narrative structure of Kings of the Wild, where that book was like, yeah, all these people know each other already and they've all been adventuring before and you're sort of getting the band back together. Whereas this one is like a totally new character coming into an established dynamic and, you know, doesn't know these people and hasn't been adventuring and the band is already together and she's not part of it yet and like stuff like that which is it's a very fun contrast to the first mm -hmm. book it's a good way of putting it it is yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think creates a, a good variety between the two mm -hmm. it helps them feel very distinct and they each have their own personality there's a a related line from Tam's perspective, I think, after she had met Rose. Was it worth it, she wondered, to look closer, to examine something or someone, if doing so risked changing your perception of them forever after? And I, th I think the follow-up line was, she was young enough to think the answer was yes, but too young to know if she was right. Oh, that's a good line. I know. This book is chock full of life advice in often comical snippets. <laughs> I like that's that's very real. Yeah, that's not to dip back into my previous tangent, but that's why I describe like when I first read these books and was telling you that like, oh yeah, I really liked these. Uh you were you were correct when you recommended them to me. And I mentioned there was like a blurb on the back of Kings of the Wild that was like, you know, Eames's style is like Tolkien meets George R. R. Martin or something like that. Like, whatever. It was two, two famous fantasy authors. Mm -hmm. And I said that I would swap one of them out for... Terry Pratchett. And that's exactly why. Like, that's one of the things that I like about Discworld and that I think I, I agree with you, like Eames does very well, is lots of good life advice in comical snippets. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And that's I probably said this last time, high praise, I think, to be compared to Pratchett. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's my favorite author of all time, easily. Yeah, I just, I have so many highlights where I'm like, oh, that was so funny. Um, <laughs> for just looking back over it, it's still amusing. Uh, which is which is weird, because when I first read Bloody Rose, I was just 
uh, I was having a grand time. It was so funny. <laughs> and I kept telling Fran about like, oh, this line was great. And then when I read it again, I don't know if it's I changed or what, but I was like, this book wasn't as funny as I remember. But then going through the highlights, I'm like, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I know what you mean. I had a, I'm having a similar experience right now. I just started rereading a book that I haven't read in like 10 years. And uh, I'm rereading it because I remember like feeling like it didn't make a huge impression on me the first time I read it. And I wanted to give it another go. And yeah, rereading it now, I'm like, oh, no, this kicks ass. <laughs> like, this is like really funny and good. And I'm really digging this a lot, actually. <laughs> is that Weird Sisters? It is Weird Sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So you um you sent me a few books to get into this world. One yeah. Of them weird Sisters. And yeah, I appreciate that. I look forward to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's really good. There's just like it's just immediately like very funny to me like uh in the opening scene there's a storm happening right it's like a dark and stormy night kind of deal but the way that it's describing the storm is like you know the storm it had put in a lot of good work uh in its younger days as a like as a squall um it spent some time you know buffeting trees and whatnot um and now it felt it was ready to move up to the big leagues and this was its time to shine <laughs> like hopefully it would be noticed by a really big climate <laughs> like yeah <wow>. just, <laughs> yeah that's it's it's a very like terry pratchett's so good at at silly stuff like that yeah crazy parallels i think in the writing styles for sure because that yeah, I can just think of lines that match up in terms of style. Great. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, there's a great one about, like, if Kira interacted with you in such a way, you would wish you were dead or something. It was great. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah. how did you feel about the villain in this book? This is interesting, because I had already read the book, and experience the plot and then rereading the book i would i just kept getting these thoughts of like is this what's gonna happen because i didn't fully remember but it felt like i kind of already knew and it, it was still i thought fairly well done but also at a point kind of obvious which i didn't mind i i liked her well enough i thought it was fine yeah she for whatever reason, didn't I agree? Like she was fine. I didn't have a problem with her. For whatever reason, she didn't click with me as much as Last Leaf did. Yeah, I think she was just bitter, right? Yeah, I guess that's probably what it's down to. Is Last Leaf's motivations were more interesting, where she was just more of a straightforward revenge kind of thing yeah revenge with lots of steps uh, but <laughs> yeah basically i'm gonna turn everyone in every, everyone in the world or at least the continent into undead mindless thralls which is which a very I do love yeah i mean that's a great evil person 
thing to do. But it, it lacks, like you said, the uh, ambition and kind of political motivations of Last Leaf, where he he wanted to give monsters a fighting chance and a home. Yeah, like Last Leaf was an asshole, but you could make the case that he had a righteous cause. <laughs> like, right. Whereas she's like, human, monster, doesn't matter, you're all gonna be undead. <laughs> Yeah. Which was an interesting twist because he did hordes twice. There was a horde in the first book and there was a horde in this book. And that can feel a bit boring or stale. But the fact that the horde very quickly became an undead horde of monsters. Yeah. Made it a little more interesting. I thought... The big dragon eater guy. I thought the the first fight with it, the fight when it's alive, was extremely cool. <laughs> like yes. a great action sequence. Oh yeah, it was. It was awesome, and it it still had those little moments of comedy, <laughs> like <laughs> like Roderick headbutting. <laughs> what's his face off the ship? Yes. <laughs> Why would you do that? I just thought we were headbutting people. We're <laughs> shoving them over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. But no, the, the fact that that fight takes place, I don't know, toward the middle of the book, mm-hmm. is very suspect, right? You Like, you know something's up, because this can't be the final conflict. But it it sure felt like one in terms of writing and how well put together it was. Yeah, absolutely. This would be like the mid-season finale in a TV show, right? Like it would have almost the same level of budget as the last episode. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I'm struggling to remember this asshole's name, but what did you think of the masked servant guy? Of uh, the evil lady. <laughs> they have names. Yeah. I thought he was interesting. I feel like we don't get quite enough of him in terms of. I feel like we don't have enough of an idea of what he was like before being turned into an undead thrall. Mm-hmm. for his like sort of tragic backstory to you know have any kind of like emotional payoff or anything yeah. but i thought he was a good like spooky you know michael myers style like refuses to die villain yeah and he's the reason is he the reason Free Cloud dies at the end? Spoiler alert. Maybe he's the reason someone dies. I was I couldn't quite remember. I was thinking it was maybe Gabe. Ooh, that might be it. Because Gabe gets shot, and that dude always has a crossbow. Yeah, he has a double decker. So it's like you think you're fine after the first shot, and then the second one might catch you by surprise. Yeah, it was, it was probably something else that got free cloud. Well, I so 
um, <laughs> to rewind to early episode complaining about things, Ethan, I super <laughs> don't like Free Cloud's death. The finale mostly works for me, but not that part. Okay, why is that? I don't feel that it is given enough justification in the text. I think the implication is that he's doing it to... For... I guess I'll offer context, even though, like, if you haven't read the book at this point, then this context won't help you anyway. Um, right. Free Cloud is in love with Rose and they have a daughter together. <laughs> yeah. But he he dies because he just stops using or seems to just stop using his prescience to like dodge attacks. And I think the implication is that he's maybe doing it to throw off the Winter Queen. Or... What happened is that he he determined that Rose was about to be killed, and so he just stopped giving a shit about himself so he could throw himself in front of what was going to kill Rose. I don't feel like it communicates that well enough. Mm. Like, I, I think if it had called out explicitly that the attacks he's taking would hit Rose it, were he not taking them. It would be more it, effective, but I don't... Does it do that? It I it made sense to me when I read it. It's from Tam's perspective, because she's questioning, like, wait, why is Free Cloud suddenly, like, derping in combat? Because he's a, he's a druid and he has the... the pre- prescient? Prescience? Yeah. To, like, kind of see a little bit ahead what's going to happen. So he should be avoiding all of these attacks that are kind of getting to him. But what she notices is that it's not that those attacks are meant for Rose. It's that he is putting all of his effort and energy into getting to Rose because he sees that she is going to be mortally injured. Okay. So he is just like all of his efforts are now on getting in front of that attack, which I, I agree there's probably other ways he could use his gifts to prevent that attack without throwing his body in the way, but... Yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't... Eh, for whatever reason, it just doesn't really work for me. I think maybe part of it is also just me being... I don't know how to phrase it. Part of me, part of it might just be me being bitter in that I think it would have been better like for their daughter if if only one is gonna get out of there it would probably be better for it to be free cloud yeah he's a good father though we can't have them (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, i i agree he would be a better parent to his daughter ren if if we had to choose between him and rose and Rose admits that she didn't really want a child. She's not ready for one. She That's not her focus. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I think it's like, um, so I've been 
<laughs> I've been telling you that I've been kind of getting back into Doctor Who lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there is a thing in Doctor Who called a weeping angel. And it's, I am familiar. Yeah. But for so, the audience, feel free. Yeah, for, for anyone who's not familiar, a uh, weeping angel is like a spooky statue. And its whole deal is that like it only moves when you're not looking at it. And uh, if it touches you, it sends you back in time. And there's a whole thing about like it that gives it sustenance in some weird sci-fi bullshit way, right? <laughs> um the whatever. Weeping angels are good in the first episode they were introduced in and bad every single time after that. <laughs> oh, but uh, at any rate, there are, again, for those unfamiliar with Doctor Who, the Doctor always travels with a couple of, with at least one other person, right? Who's just usually just like a normal human. And... They're referred to as companions, and it's usually like a big deal when one leaves the show because they either usually they like die tragically, but sometimes they just decide to stop adventuring with the doctor and it's fine. But at any rate, there is a very popular pair of companions who leave the show because a weeping angel you know gets to him or whatever and it sends him back in time this is a show about a man who time travels <laughs> yeah and it's like a, it's like a tragedy that they're like sent back in time and you know grow old and die in the past or whatever and it's like you've got a time machine <laughs> like you could fix this and they give like the weakest hand wave of like, no, he can't. Uh, they got sent back to 1920s New York or something, and he can't go back there for time reasons. There's his, his phone booth wouldn't fit in. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's too much. He's time traveled back there a bunch of times already. He can't do it again because what if he bumps into himself and paradox or something? Even though that happens like fairly regularly, anytime there's like an anniversary <laughs> special, there's like one or two other doctors, and they all just kind of hang out together. But no, he can't do it this time. Oh no! And it drives me fucking crazy because it's like, even if you accept that that is like the reasoning that he can't, like he can't go back to New York in the twenties or whatever, it's just impossible. That's fucking dumb. But even if you want to accept that as the reasoning, it's like, okay, he can't go to fucking New Jersey in the 20s and fucking send them a letter like, hey, you know, just drive over to Jersey City and I'll fucking pick you up. <laughs> like, he can't Boy. go to 1930, 1930 New York? Yeah, like, I was just thinking. And just be like, hey, sorry you had to wait for a couple years, but like, I'm here now. <laughs> like, there's a billion ways to get around this. Yeah. The free cloud thing felt a little bit like that to me where I was just like there wasn't a better way to do this like I'm not against him dying I just don't buy that this is like a good way for him to die I whether there were ways that he could have gotten out of it or if there are better ways to make it happen maybe I was I think I was satisfied with it because they 
they death they death flag him super early. That's like, very true. Like incredibly early. <laughs> it's like That's very true. It's like free cloud is a coin flipping and on one side is uh rose and on the other is his daughter ren and wherever it falls he loses and it's like okay <laughs> i mean it was a, it was a good line it, it, it oh was, yeah but sure. and then they just kind of repeat throughout the book like how much he loves rose and would do anything and she's like gonna be his undoing yeah i, I feel like the way it was written at least executed well in my opinion even if it wasn't maybe the most logical way for it to happen I will say I was satisfied that he died, generally speaking, <laughs> because um, this is me uh, going to criticism mode again. As much as I like Eames, I think he has a real problem, like hurting his characters. I thought it was very pronounced in Kings of the Wild and mm. a little bit better here. I think we talk about it in the Kings of the Wild episode. Like, I really don't like that Clay gets his hand back. This book is still kind of bad about it in terms of like, like Gabe dies partway through, but I don't know, like, not that it's not emotional, but it's also like you, you know that it's going to happen like and, and he had a story right yeah i do like the way that it happens specifically that he just sort of dies while they're traveling like he survives initially in like the chapter that it happens and he it's not like a big dramatic like he says one final thing to rose and then dies or whatever like he lives for a few hours and then he just kind of quietly dies in the back of their cart while they're like traveling to get him medical attention. Yeah. I liked that little bit of like realism, but yeah, I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a very expected death and it's very like, it very much serves like a narrative purpose, right? Like it feels less like a, consequence for the characters and more like a story beat that this kind of story hits if that makes sense it's the obi-wan or you know the dude from aragon who is basically just fantasy (laughs) obi-wan or whatever yeah um it's like that moment of you know older somewhat mentor figure i mean father figure in this case sacrifices themselves to save the hero kind of thing and i i like how rose does i think connect a little bit more with her father after that but immediately after the fact is it acknowledges that he wasn't the greatest father and this doesn't just resolve absolve him of that yes it it still gives rose room to kind of resent him and then Mm -hmm. as the book goes on she chooses to embody a little bit more of him yes yeah yeah it's handled very well for sure but like 
I was not that I disliked this character or wanted them to die, but I was like kind of annoyed that Bran lives. Yeah, it seems like a mortal wound for sure. Yeah, even before that, like I like when they go to the site of like right before Gabe dies, when they're going to where the horde has already like fucked up a bunch of bands or whatever. And she is thinking like, oh, I wonder if Bran lived or whatever. Like, I don't know. In my head, I was just like, yeah, he did. I'm sure he's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It would maybe be a little more interesting if he wasn't. And then, yeah, then like later he even gets like real fucked up. But yeah, I like run through. Yeah, by like the like serrated bone saber or whatever the fuck that Hawkshaw has. Yeah, that's his name. That guy. Uh, yeah, it's just like, nah, but he's still okay. Like, yeah, that that surprised me. I think it surprised me both times. I'm like, how did he survive that? But okay. Yeah, and, and it, like, they make, there are several mentions of how, like, absolutely fucked Brune gets in the last yeah. battle. He's fine. <laughs> like, there's There's a specific line that calls out, like, you know, the immense tolls of war that not everyone is going to make it home. And it's in direct reference to Brune being crushed by something. Yeah. Anyway, he's got a broken leg. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, there's three deaths in the book, and then one of them turns out to be a fake out, and Rose is actually alive still. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. Which, you know, I. I'm glad the people who survived did survive, but it also oh, seemed yeah. like Kira was going to sacrifice herself because, uh, again, mm -hmm. another badass moment. All of her tattoos, all of her ink summons, she spends them all at once, which is like incredibly taxing. And you think, OK, she's not coming back from this, right? And she was fine. More she does at least like lose all of them, right? Like they actually yeah. like are gone now yes which was a, a really nice character moment because it mm -hmm. to me indicates a little bit of like letting go of some of that hold the trauma had yes yeah i i like that a lot and and that's what that's what i think the root of my complaint with this stuff is it's like i don't want these characters to die i like these characters i just think that it really undercuts the stakes of the story if there's not any like loss that comes with it like mm -hmm. i don't know there's a there's a trilogy of star wars books that i really enjoyed that are set like between <clears throat> episode 6 and 7 like, not that long after episode six, I think. And it's got, you know, a, a group of, like, four or five main characters that it sort of switches between perspectives, and they're all, like, on the same... They're all in the same, like, fighter squadron, right? And that's, like, a big, you know, it's the, the aftermath of the downfall of the empire and the rebellion is still sort of like 
taking out imperial remnants and like establishing a new government and all this stuff. So, you know, the stakes get progressively bigger as like the trilogy goes on of like what kind of people they're fighting and the scale of what the empire is doing on certain worlds and like all that stuff. And like, yeah, everybody pretty much gets a happy ending in that series. Like everyone lives and all that stuff. But like people get really fucked up, right? Like, <laughs> uh, like they live, but they have like really serious, like, wounds and like psychological scars and stuff like that like they are very noticeably changed by the experiences of the three books and i don't really feel like you get that in these i think in the in the epilogue or however it's formatted we get glimpses of that i think rose is done right yeah and and tam is talking about how her and kira are there for each other but i think there's a lot to unpack emotionally between them and they're not like officially an item if you yeah will. like there's i think there's some lasting issues but we don't get time to see those in uh either book really yeah but I, I definitely see what you're saying. There could be so much more throughout the books that would change those characters dramatically. Clay hands being the most obvious, but beside that, uh, other things as well. Yeah, Ganelon. Ganelon was that. Ganelon. Name. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which I was annoyed that he didn't show up. Yeah, you you mentioned it, and I was like, yeah. When I when I got around to reading that part, it's like, oh, Larkspur mentions I'm gonna go get him, gonna go wake him up, because Ganelon turned back into stone at the end of the last book. And I, I think you pointed out the significance of his phrasing of wake me up when she gets here. Mm-hmm. Meaning meaning the queen. Nobody woke him up, or he took too long getting there. I don't know. Maybe yeah. he'll decide the story of how he was waylaid. I I think I think she mentions when she says that she's gonna go get him like I think someone says like you're never gonna make it back in time or something like I think there's an implication in that scene that it's probably fruitless I'm just like why did you bother setting it up then (laughs) if it's not gonna you know pay off and in fairness like I'm sure probably when he wrote that ending he intended for it to pay off right like I'm sure probably he was just in the process of writing Bloody Rose. He probably just hit a point where he was like, I don't have time to work this in. Like, um, and that's, that's fair. You know, like I, I get that that stuff happens when you're writing, you know, sometimes the story changes on you or, or doesn't quite go where you anticipated when you started out or, you have another idea that you like more or whatever. I'm sure he probably took a look at where things were going in the final battle and just decided, like, I don't want to take away the focus on 
you know, Rose and this band that this book is about by bringing Ganelon in to do some shit. Yeah. But by the same token, like, Clay plays kind of a big part in the end game and stuff. And I just feel like, you know, you could have at least had like a line in there somewhere about like, and also Ganelon was there fucking stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so this doesn't work as well in the context of books and movies, things where you need to, um, you know, have things planned out and make sense. But I think in reality, the best laid plans don't always pan out. And so when you get Ganelon being kind of a little shit and going to turn himself back to stone and be like, yeah, just wake me up when she gets here. I'm in this location somewhere, probably far away from where things are happening. It's like, Ganelon. <laughs> Or you could just stick around for a little bit since you are aware she's going to show up. Like, your plan clearly isn't working. Yeah. It it could just be he came out and was like, oh, she's dead already? Shit. (laughs) Well, there'll probably be something else. Wake me up when that gets here. (laughs) Right. Okay, I I have a theory. Let me, give me a second. Maybe you noticed this too. It is a bit like he said, wake me up when September ends. And then they woke him up on like October 5th. Right. It technically ended, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to find it again. I was just scrolling through. But there was in this book, Bloody Rose mentioned uh an iceberg or glacier that inside of it a named dragon is sleeping. And there's a line that says, like, God help us all if that thing wakes up. And I'm like, is that gonna be the next threat? Because I don't think we can do another horde, please. Yeah. Well, but um, what if this is a dragon's horde? Treasure? <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's it's a whole new horde. It's a horde of dragons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is where all the all the dragons that the dragon eater ate, that's where they go to this guy's horde. Yeah. Pocket dimension. <laughs> but yeah, I'm curious to see where that goes. And maybe they'll bring Ganolin back for outlaw nation or whatever it's called yeah outlaw empire ah there we go maybe it's his empire who knows (laughs) now that reminds me we also didn't hear see much of um maddie yeah that's true matrick yeah matrick i mean he was the the sovereign of a the first place not Compass. yeah yeah they they allude to how things are over there once or twice but it's not very central i think they mention that monsters are like allowed citizenship there and stuff but they mm-hmm. don't really like talk about it in detail yeah they don't try to get help from him or anything like that yeah I thought it was very interesting, given how much the first book talks about how fucked up the treatment of monsters is. I thought this book's approach to that topic was interesting, because it Mm -hmm. is, again, a recurring theme. Like, even from very early on, one of the first scenes is Tam walking through the like monster market and kind of reflecting on how sort of fucked up the whole thing is. 
there is something depressingly realistic about the climax of the first book being like Gabe giving a big inspiring speech about how like fighting monsters in arenas is like dumb bullshit and like we were heroes because we like went and did this cool shit in the heart wild and like we have a chance to do something like that again or whatever and it really feels like this great like sort of rallying cry like a moment to maybe like get the the bands of the world back on track and like <clears throat> all that stuff and then this book is like five years later and it's like yeah um that didn't really happen <laughs> no arenas are super popular yeah yeah it still does a great job of from tam and the party's perspective calling out the shady things that are taking place the the drugging of monsters so that the champions will win or just humanizing monsters like with Roderick mm-hmm. and and just calling out like oh this is inhumane oh that's not right oh that's kind of more brutal than I expected yeah I, I thought that was like an interesting aspect of the first half of the book before all the like horde stuff kicks off is Tam really thinks quite a lot about how, like, this is all sort of gross. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't, like, I like being a part of the band, but I don't really like that, like, this is what we do. That reminds me, one of my favorite moments that I don't think we talked about last episode was with the Cyclops. Oh, because, yeah. He, he, you get to have your cake and eat it too, where you get this almost quote unquote Mary Sue moment where Tam, who is, you know, fine with a bow, runs out to save Rose and shoots a Cyclops. And it looks like she hits it and downs the Cyclops. And that's such a heroic moment. Yay, good for Tam. And then she wakes up and finds out that she shot Rose and Rose <laughs> slit the Cyclops throat. And that to me was like such a great subversion yes that's fantastic because <laughs> that's that's her first experience really fighting something of that caliber at all and she just mm -hmm. runs out and takes one shot and it's unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> but everyone in the crowd saw it the way we initially saw it that tam did kill the cyclops so she gets yeah. that that glory <laughs> it reminds me of uh, again <laughs> a discworld thing uh that i think i might have actually talked about in the kings of the wild episode the first guards book has a dragon as the villain and there's like a whole extended sequence where a couple of characters talk about how you know like how do you kill a dragon well like in the stories it's always some brave hero makes a um shoots it with a bow or stabs it with a sword or whatever. And it's, it's a million to one shot, but this bold hero like pulls it off and kills the beast in a single stroke or whatever. So they decide like that they need to recreate those conditions. Essentially. They're like, all right, so <laughs> we need to take a shot that will be a million to one. Cause that's clearly the only way to kill a dragon. So like stand on this rooftop blindfold over one eye like stand on 
stand on your right foot. <laughs> like, um, we got to make sure that it's a million to one. Awesome. Yeah. Same <laughs> tongue in cheek type of approach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one very small moment that I really liked is Moog has his owlbear cu- cubs, I guess. Yeah. And they're named after the Etten heads from the first book, which is a very sweet moment. Yeah, Gregor and Dane. Yeah. And you had mentioned really liking that, but I hadn't read Kings of the Wild yet to appreciate it. <laughs> and now I do. And it it's sweet, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good book. I, I really enjoyed both of these books a lot. They are great. For all of our nitpicks and criticisms, I absolutely recommend them. They're a ton of fun. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I came down really hard on Bloody Rose in this episode, but it's, uh, you know, it's tough love, I guess. it's <laughs> I, I really, really like the book. I honestly, I probably only really skewed negative because all of the positive things I could say about it, I already said about Kings of the Wild in our previous episode. So I don't want to retread old ground, but everything I said there about, you know, the author's style and the character work and all that stuff applies to Bloody Rose as well. Yeah. Super sharp writing, super witty. And a really cool, yeah, a really cool world. I think his setting is really neat and he does some really interesting world building. That's true. Yeah. Oh, and I like uh, to to wrap up the point about monsters and stuff. I like that that plays into the ending in a major way that they end up freeing a bunch of the monsters in the city that they're holed up in and sort of like conscripting them. Like it's it's still not awesome, <laughs> uh, yeah. but like if I remember right, Clay is kind of the one who kicks it off and. Like, I think is is certainly his heart is in the right place. Like, he's trying to make progress where he can in that regard. Yeah, it's um, it's tough because change doesn't really happen overnight, especially when you have someone like Clay who's been doing this his whole life. But yeah, I, th- I think it was you can like stay in these cages and die when we lose or you can come out and fight with us and then go do your own thing. Yeah. Not a great choice, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's more than some nothing, so. Yeah. It's a step in the right direction at least. Mostly I just uh I appreciate that that theme carries through the book really well after kind of being set up in the first book. Yeah. I agree. Anything else you want to touch upon? I don't think so. Without without giving too much uh, detail for me, because I'm going to be reading it soon, who's your favorite character in Weird Sisters? Oh, Granny Weatherwax. Okay, she's, she's the main character. Um, right? I mean, yeah, arguably, yeah. It's, it's sort of an ensemble piece. There's like three witches um, that are all pretty central, but um, Granny is, is the standout for sure. Sweet. She a badass? Oh, yeah. I, like, 
that was another thing that I appreciated in starting to reread it. It, it Weird Sisters is technically the second witch book, but the first one, Equal Rights, is like the third Discworld book total. And mm. uh, it's just not quite like Pratchett hasn't quite got the setting and stuff down. And like Granny there is not quite the granny of the rest of the witch books you know what i mean yeah i get it but uh she's just immediately awesome in (laughs) weird sisters yeah one of her first scenes is her like facing down a soldier who uh, doesn't really believe that witches have you know power or whatever (laughs) and uh it doesn't go great for him. <laughs> awesome. I look forward to reading it. Yeah. Well, cool. Oh, shit. There's one more thing I want to touch on really fast. Stream? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> it's good. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You're just going to brainwash the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I've made it this far. I can't miss a reference now. (laughs) 